It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing at 266 Edgware Road in Paddington, W2. One street east of the Blackout Ripper slaughter of Dors June. One street north of the Met Police's shooting of David Martin. Two streets west of the studio where Reg Christie shot some pornographic snaps. And four streets south of Timothy Cotter. The sweet-faced 14-year-old boy who wouldn't harm a fly. Coming soon to Murder Mile. On the north corner of Chapel Street and Edgware Road currently sits a branch of Marks and Spencers. It's the kind of place where people who want to be posh but aren't posh shop. Hence its food hall is often stocked with pretentiously tasty treats for Tarquin and Tara. Such as Scotch quail eggs, caviar-coated Mars bars, champagne and oyster milkshakes, and the devil's very own vegetable, Mange too. Ugh. But before the original buildings were demolished to make way for the A40 flyover, on the ground floor of 266 Edgware Road, once stood a humble little eatery called the Victory Cafe. Although only small and narrow, it was a friendly little place which served simple foods like tea, coffee, toast and fry-ups. And being in an era when most people, especially in a city, didn't own their own kitchens, these cafes provided three square meals a day and was a place of warmth, companionship and safety. The Victory Cafe was managed by 50-year-old Alice Williams, a quiet, nervous, but hard-working lady who everyone called Madam. So respected was Alice that when a regular customer called June needed her help, she did just that and put into storage June's personal belongings and her life savings. Both women trusted one another. But on the Boxing Day of 1950, something made Alice snap. So what should have been a swift transaction sparked a fight for their lives and ended in death. My name is Michael, 
I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 162, Madam. Madam was very much a private lady who kept to herself. She didn't engage in idle gossip, and she never talked about her past. Therefore, although people liked her, they knew very little about her. Born Alice Elizabeth Davies on the 8th of April 1900, as she spoke with a hint of scouse, many people believed that she was from Liverpool, whereas actually she came from Church Stretton in neighbouring Shropshire. Raised alongside her three surviving siblings, Jack, William and Kathleen, Alice worked from an early age in her parents' bakery at 7 Roberts Lane in Ross, just outside Wrexham. Always being a dot of a lady with curly dark hair, she never let her short stature hold her back, as she knew there was nothing she couldn't achieve if she put her back into the task. By the outbreak of World War I, age 14, Alice was working as a cook at the Shotton Barracks just outside Liverpool. She was young, alone, and having met a dashing private called George Arthur Williams. She fell in love, and within two years, they were married. It should have been the start of a beautiful life for Alice, but it was not to be. Disapproving of George, her parents neither blessed nor attended their wedding. And maybe they were right, as although this young couple would give birth to two sons, Henry and Oliver, it was no place to raise a child, as with George being a violent and cruel alcoholic, Alice fled in fear, and the boys were put into foster care. In 1925, whilst earning an honest crust as the manageress of a cafe in Liverpool, Alice met and moved in with a labourer called Frederick Arthur Williams. Unable to legally ditch her ex, this new relationship proved far from scandalous, as most people believed that Alice and Frederick were already married, owing to the coincidence of his surname. So again, this should have been a fresh start for Mrs. Alice Williams. But it was not to be. Alice wanted so badly to be loved, but she had lost her trust in people. Her family were gone, her children were in care, and her violent ex-husband retained a stranglehold on her life. To prevent any further pain, she focused on work and she kept everyone at an arm's length. But one strange and seemingly innocent accident would shape the rest of Alice's life forever. In 1926, whilst working at a German pork butchers in Liverpool, Alice was cutting up chops with a meat slicer as the sharp circular blade 
sliced up half-inch slabs of pig's flesh in a series of clean, fast swipes. It was a simple rolling action with her right hand that she had done thousands of times before. Only this time, all it took was a split-second lapse of concentration to sever the tip of her right middle finger. From the tip to the cuticle, her half-inch of finger lay lifeless amongst the sliced of pig, as blood poured from the unusually flat remains of her bony stump. Having gone to the hospital, Alice had the wound cauterized, the skin stitched over, the tip was binned, and the stump was left to heal. Only the severed tip was not the biggest problem. Having been slicing raw pork, bacteria had infected the open wound, which led to blood poisoning and her finger being amputated down to the knuckle. Again, this minor disability didn't stop her determination or drive. But owing to the poisoning, the drugs she would remain on for the rest of her life would lead to insomnia, tiredness, and a strange inability to sleep lying down. In 1936, Alice rented a flat at 104 Whitfield Street in Fitzrovia. It was little more than a furnished room, although for reasons only known to her, she rarely stayed there and she never slept there. Over the next few years, although she retained the flat, she moved from job to job, county to county, entirely focused on her work and rarely seeing each other, Alice and Frederick grew distant. From 1936 to 1939, Alice worked various jobs. As a service hand at the Manchester Hotel, a waitress at the Lansdowne restaurant in Berkeley Square, on the cooked meats counter at the Duke Street Cafe, and she spent her summers as the manageress of the Cabin Cafe in Douglas on the Isle of Man. By the outbreak of the Second World War, Alice had become the assistant to Max Finkelstein, a Jewish refugee having fled Berlin, who was working as the night manager at the Imperial Milk Bar on Tottenham Court Road. And with Frederick having enlisted, the two cohabited in a flat above a hairdresser's. By 1940, she was managing the Victory Cafe at 266 Edgware Road, where she would remain for the next nine years. Alice was as happy as Alice could be. She had a home, a career, a lover, and a few savings. So what would drive her to stab June McKechnie, a loyal customer and a trusted friend. The Vitry Cafe at 266 Edgeway Road sat a few doors down from the Gaumont Cinema. Being nestled between three pubs, a bank, a men's hostel, Paddington Station and St Mary's Hospital, 
business was steady. And being open from 7am till 11pm, it pulled in £32 a day. Originally a full-width building, which was split vertically in two to make way for a hairdresser's, the cafe was thin and narrow. With tables and chairs up front, a till and serving hatch behind, and a kitchen at the rear, which customers were expressly forbidden to enter. In fact, with the kitchen as her domain, Alice only allowed the waitresses to enter the kitchen to collect their coats when the shift was over. She insisted on punctuality, manners and cleanliness. And although some may have thought of her as a little bossy, being a stickler for the rules, her staff never had a bad word to say about her as her exacting standards ensured that the customers always came back. At her insistence, the waitresses called her Madam, and so appreciated was Alice that even many of her regular customers also called her Madam. Every day, except for Sunday mornings, she worked a 15-hour shift. An impressive feat given how the blood poisoning would often leave her tired and suffering with insomnia. To combat this ailment, even though Alice and Max shared the upstairs room, just like her flat in Fitzrovia, which after 14 years she still rented but rarely used, Alice never slept in her own bed. Instead, when the cafe was quiet and at night when it was shut, it was the kitchen where she would snooze, sat upright in an armchair. As for the customers, this was a safe familiar space for those living in lodgings who lacked the facilities to cook their own food. For many, it was easier and cheaper to get their three square meals a day at the Victory Cafe, where the atmosphere was pleasant the food was honest and affordable, and although it had been a long while since a smile had cracked Alice's taut cheeks, she was well-liked and trusted. Sadly, in the March of 1950, after more than a decade of cohabiting together, Alice and Max ended their relationship. As a Jewish refugee who had fled Nazi Germany with nothing, no money, no belongings, and no knowledge of what cruel fate had befallen his family. With the war firmly over, Max headed back to the bombed-out remnants of his home city of Berlin to seek out his missing son. Having said goodbye to Max, possibly forever, his departure left a big hole in Alice's quiet little life and feeling desperately low, what she needed was a friend. So it's odd that the person she trusted to become her new pal was of all people a customer.
June Georgina McKegney was born on the 2nd of November 1930 at One Upper Bow in Edinburgh. As one of four siblings, raised by Georgina, a housewife, and Archibald, a shoemaker, they were a respectable working-class family who lived a good life in a small terraced house. Being little, slim, and fair-haired, June was described as a bundle of fun. A good, honest lady who was liked by the girls, fancied by the boys, and who was pleasant and friendly. Academically, she was bright, as being blessed with a higher-than-average IQ. Unlike many girls her age, she was moved from Castle Hill School to St. James's Technical School, where she left age 14 with a higher qualification. For four years, June worked as a machinist in the local factories, drilling, burring, packing, and making the minimum wage. But as a fashionable girl, whose colorful flourishes were a stark contrast to the drab gray gloom of the factory, she had always dreamed of doing something more with her life. So aged 18, with little more than a suitcase full of clothes, she made the leap and moved to London. This was June's dream. But like most dreams, it would only exist when she was asleep. Having struggled to find work, eating only when she could, and barely scraping together the rent on a squalid little lodging at 13 Cravenhill Gardens in Paddington, June turned to prostitution. It wasn't pleasant, but by parading up and down Parade Street in Sussex Gardens, she could earn one pound per client and service several men a night, meaning she earned more than for a week in a factory. On the 6th of February 1950, she received the first of five convictions for soliciting. And although she didn't do any prison time, it made returning to a regular life much harder. But this only made her more determined to fulfill her new dream. To do one, maybe two years as a sex worker, and then sell up. By the spring of 1950, 20-year-old June McKechnie had become a friendly face at the Victory Cafe. So much so that the staff and customers had begun to name her Scotty. Whether breakfast, lunch, dinner or supper, June was a welcome addition to this little cafe which many regulars regarded as home. And although Madame Alice wasn't exactly the most welcome of people, between this unlikely twosome, a friendship began to blossom. They made an unlikely twosome, a drab kitchen-bound widow and a lithe, stylish sex worker. As the two hung out together after hours, Alice actually let her into the secluded sanctuary of the cafe's kitchen. And when she needed it, Alice kept June's personal belongings safe. 
At first, June simply asked Alice if she would mind storing a box of her most fashionable outfits. It wasn't a problem. In fact, it was a pleasure, as Alice had space for it in a storeroom behind the kitchen. She even let June change dresses and do her makeup in the kitchen before heading out to pick up her punters. At around the same time, as sex work was a cash-only transaction and June was unwilling to deposit this money into her post office account, she asked Alice to hold her money for a short while. It began with relatively small sums, folded bundles of one-pound notes, which June could withdraw whenever she liked, and only Alice knew where was hidden. As the year dragged on, with June working harder to achieve her goal, the amounts started increasing. But when it started exceeding £30, the income the cafe took each day, Alice insisted that June keep a record of the transactions in her diary, which she did. Two weeks before Christmas, June asked to withdraw £20. But at the last minute, June changed her mind, saying she was too tired and it was too much bother. By Friday the 22nd of December 1950, just four days before, with the post office closed for Christmas and being in the process of moving lodgings, June handed Alice the largest cash bundle so far. It consisted of £70 in £1 notes, £30 in fives and £34 in ones. In total, it amounted to £214, roughly £7,800 today. For both women, money was not an issue. So what led one of them to end up dead? It was the night of Tuesday the 26th of December 1950, Boxing Day. Having been closed on Christmas Day, the Victory Cafe still had its festive decorations up. With a small tree in the corner, joyous tunes playing from the radio, and the reassuring smell of turkey, roast buds and stuffing wafting from the kitchen. As always, Alice was cooking, all while dressed in her usual flowered pinafore and red carpet slippers. At 10.30pm, as per usual, June entered the cafe. That night was as predictable as any other. Alice greeted her pal with a polite Merry Christmas. June sat and ate her hearty festive meal. And in the cafe, there were nine customers, two waitresses, Joan Haig and Betty Emerson, and the cashier, Evelyn Attlee. Having mopped up the plate's gravy with a slab of white bread, Alice went behind the counter, as she was permitted to do. She paid two shillings and threepence for her meal, and then she headed into the small kitchen out back to chat with her pal, Alice. 
At 10.45 p.m., the cafe closed. At 11 p.m., with the last of the customers having left and the door locked, the waitresses cleaned up the restaurant while Alice washed up and June applied her makeup. At 11.20 p.m., with their chores done, the staff collected their coats and bags from the cloakroom. They headed to the front door, which Alice unlocked. They all said their pleasantries. They left, and the door was bolted behind them. Nothing was different. The only excitement was that as Betty and Joan turned left, at the corner of Chapel Street, they saw Len, a waiter from the Victory Cafe, who was a little worse for wear and chatting up a prostitute. Fearing he was vulnerable and a possible target for robbery, they stood there for several minutes, trying to convince him to go home. Apart from that, the street was quiet, as the shops were shut and the pubs had kicked out. Inside the cafe's kitchen, with the pots and pans now drying, Alice and June continued talking. With her makeup done and her scarf on, June went to pick up her red handbag from the side, to head out into the darkness, as when the pub shut, many a sozzled drinker staggers into the streets, looking for sex. Out of the blue, Alice said, You can come upstairs with me now, and we can do that. June knew what she meant, as hidden under her unwieldy bedroom floorboards, Alice had hidden her money. The post office was open the next day, so as it made sense, June said, all right. All right, I'll, I'll come, come up, up with, with you. you. It was a withdrawal as normal as any other that the two friends had done before. And although nothing seemed out of the ordinary, something had changed. As June went to ascend the stairs, Alice asked her, go get the box out of the cupboard. She knew what she meant, as it was a small box above the gas stove, with Alice's savings book inside. But seeing two boxes, as she turned to query, which box do you mean? That was when Alice struck. Without a word of warning, holding the six-inch kitchen knife high, with wild eyes, Alice began hacking at June's flesh. A two-inch slash sliced open her left cheek. A three-and-a-half-inch gash tore over the crown of her skull. And an inch-deep stab buried deep into her left shoulder. As the blade continued stabbing, down and deep. With three more wounds to her left arm and chest. As the frenzy continued unabated. In desperation, being unarmed, 
June made a grab for the knife. But as she gripped the sharp blade, it sliced into her fingers and began ripping apart her palm's muscles as she struggled to wrench it free. Seeing June fight for her life, Alice tried to trip her up, to fell her to the floor and gain the upper hand. Only they both fell, hitting the floor knees first, as the two fought dirtier and more ferocious. With her screams muffled by Alice's right hand, like a feral cat, June sunk her teeth into her fleshy right hand. As with her left, she pulled Alice's jaw down and low. As Alice loosened her grip, June grabbed the knife and stabbed it down hard into the floor, bending the blade into an L-shape so it became useless. Bleeding profusely, as the blood poured down her face and pulled into her eyes, June began to fight back. But with her energy sapped and her stab-riddled arm and chest now weakened, she began to feel dizzy. Struggling, June knew that she had to act fast. Otherwise, she would die. From the chopping board, June grabbed a potato knife. Fueled by the fear of her imminent death, she plunged the tiny blade into Alice, and having briefly released her grip, June fled. And as she unbolted the door, turning for one brief second, as she fled, the last thing that June saw was Alice standing in the doorway of her kitchen, staring. June fled into Edgware Road, as her pale skin dripped with red-hot blood. Seen by Betty and Joan, they asked, What happened? Only for June to expel an incredulous tale of a trusted woman, who for no reason had snapped. An ambulance arrived, and June was taken to St Mary's Hospital. And although deeply traumatised, she made a slow, but full recovery. Sergeant Burgoyne and Detective Constable Ogden entered the blood-splattered kitchen to find two knives, one bent, and Alice Williams dead. She had been stabbed six times, once fatally in the right lung. With the only witness to this murder being a known prostitute with prior convictions whose blood and fingerprints were found at the scene, and who admitted to stabbing this quiet, respected woman. The police investigated her story, but when they pulled up the floorboards, they found no money. There was no £230 in the bedroom, just £120 in folded notes found in a disused icebox. But whose money was it? the trusted businesswoman's or the illegal sex workers. 
on the 25th of January 1951. At Marleybone Magistrates Court, the case was heard before Mr. G.G. Raphael. With a murder charge and a death sentence hanging over her head, the magistrate asked Mr. Morris Crump for the prosecution, is there any evidence inconsistent with justifiable homicide? Mr. Crump said no. And believing her story of self-defense, June McKechnie was dismissed and set free. But quite why Alice would try to kill June, that answer has followed Madam to the grave. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Oh, dear Lord, that was a, a bit of a trial and a tribulation, that one. Oh, let's open some windows. Let's let the horrible sounds of the world come back in. Oh, last week we were lucky because the, the truck drivers were... It was fine. They, I think they were they were away or doing something on a, a break or something. They're probably going to get be quiet now. It's just been really noisy. And there's someone outside with a uh, a twat with a really annoying motorbike going rum, 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 because they have a small penis uh, or small vagina. I don't know. Is, is that is that the way that it happens with ladies? I don't know. Anyway, it's gone quiet now. F in typical. F in typical. Um, 
So welcome to Extra Mile, folks. I'm going to get rid of uh, the shield that's out the way. I'm going to make me a cup of tea in a bit. Lovely jubbly. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile. This is the unscripted, unedited bit. I'll dive into some extra details about the case for you shortly. We will do a quiz. <coughs> before we go, uh, before we go, I'm not going anywhere. What am I doing? I'm all over the shop. Uh, uh, thank you to our new Patreon supporters who are Sally Norris, T. Bilo and Debbie Riches. I thank you. I hope you're enjoying all the free, all the lovely goodies on uh, Patreon and all the exclusive videos and the crime scene photos, which I don't share anywhere else. If you want crime scene photos, come to Patreon. It's worth it. It's only two pounds, like two quid a month. It's nothing. Two quid a month, but then they throw tax on top for no particular reason. Um, also, a thank you to uh, two people who sent very kind donations uh, to support Murder Mile. That was, of course, Sally Norris again. Thank you, Sally. Uh, and uh, Evelina Westcott. Thank you both very much. It's very much appreciated. Um, I'm going to go and put on my tea. Uh, oh, look at that coffee. It's all, it's all horrible and old. It's so peaceful outside now. So annoying. There was a guy about to start drilling a minute ago. That's why I was, I was desperately trying to get this done. Yeah, three trucks parked up, not one of them is making a sound. Oh, it's, it's typical. It's typical. Well, they've got a job to do, and they're doing their job, so I can't grumble about that. People, people have jobs to do. Oh, right, making the tea. Tea is on. Uh, one sugar in. I don't want to have too much because I'm already fat enough. Um, uh, I am treating myself today to some lovely, lovely, lovely Polish donuts. There's a air ambulance going over. Uh, there's a, a couple of nice, really Polish bakeries around the corner. Very nice. They do uh, some really nice donuts. The great thing is they're not labelled. Well, they are labelled, but I can't read the labels, and I don't ask them what is in there. So it's like it's like roulette. Very nice donuts, but I have just no idea what's in there. What else is going on in the world? Um, where I am is very, it's all right apart from the trucks uh, and the lack of Wi-Fi. There's no, I'm in a Wi-Fi dead spot. I can't even get texts. It's really annoying. But I do have five coots outside and when I open my door, they all come flocking towards me. There's one particularly who's very confident and he comes right up to the door and he just looks at me and goes, where's my bloody dinner? Uh, there's also two more hen as well. Uh, and a, sw a swan that comes past every so often and just does a little look in. Uh, what else is going on? Oh, I'm back in the archives on Friday. So by the time you hear this, I would have done that. There's two files that I want to get uh, access to. I haven't got time to do them fully, so I'll go in and take pictures of all the files uh, and the documents. Uh, and one of them, because uh, I put in a lot of freedom of information requests for files that aren't open to try and see if they can be opened. And one of them got granted, which is great. Uh, I just hope the, the file is worth it because sometimes you open up the file and sometimes they can be full and rich and like really you're like wow this is everything and then one of the cases that's coming up oh god it was there's was nothing in there it really was an empty case so really annoying um, let's do a bit of the quiz uh, while my tea is brewing I might have to stop this halfway through right don't forget I might balls up some of these questions halfway through so here is the quiz question one where was Alice born Question two, what was Alice's first job? Question three, what was Alice's surname before she got married? Question four, 
Where was Alice working when she injured her finger? Oh, kettle's work to go. There, let's let that stew. There we go. Good. What did we get to? We got to question five. Before managing the Victory Cafe, where did Alice spend her summers? Oh, I've got a hot water bottle on my feet because it's really cold out. Oh. Uh, question six. What was June's middle name? Question seven. What special meal were they serving in the cafe on the day of the murder? Question eight. What was the name of the cafe's waiter who was drunkenly picking up a prostitute? I've very kindly not used his full name there. Question nine. Coot seems to know that. What was the name of the cinema or theatre next to the cafe? He's saying, where's my breakfast at the moment? Uh, and question 10. What was the name of the pub which Alice occasionally went to for a little sherry? Mmm. Exciting. Let's just finish this tea and then I'll come back and I'll fill you in on all some lovely, exciting stuff to do with the case. Uh, powdered milk in. Yummy. Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go. Um, yeah, no... There we go. Oh, get in there. And as always, it leaves a little bit of a sludge, a horrible sludge on the spoon. Oh, yummy. Right, coming back, coming back. Okay, so there's lots to discuss on this one. This is one of those cases where there's lots of details in there, but the real question in there is why. It's the motive. Why? Why would Alice attack June? Um... It's odd. It's we'll, we'll go. Let's go through this. So, um, in the lead up to this, there was no quarrel between either of the ladies. They all seemed to be in a good, good kind of communication with each other. The waitresses all said that they were they were happy. They were talking together. Nothing had really changed. Um, Alice doesn't seem to have done this before. She doesn't seem to be an aggressor. She doesn't seem to carry knives. These were actually uh, the knives were proven to be owned by the cafe themselves. Um, so it doesn't look like it was kind of uh, predetermined. You know, it doesn't look like she'd already decided she was going to grab it. She just seems to have snapped, but we we don't know why. Um, so here's some questions that I'm just thinking. Um, did she know that June was planning to leave? Because June was kind of saying that she wanted to go back to Scotland at some point. So was June planning to leave? Was she upset that her only friend that she kind of developed over the year was leaving her? Um, um, it it seems kind of... I, I can, You can kind of understand it partially, but why does... You can understand why June would give money to a friend and a business owner to kind of say can you look after this because she she doesn't trust the banks and she doesn't trust her lodgers uh and of course it's illegal money so she has to be quite cautious with it but why does alice choose to look after the money that's the kind of question that still plagues me a, a bit is there is it just friendship or is there something else going on uh it's just strange um I'm looking at my questions here. There's, there's, uh, did Alice have any money problems? Well, we can, we can dive into that in a bit. There are bits and pieces in there. Um, 
Is that why she stole it? Is that why they could only find £120 in the icebox and it wasn't underneath the floorboards? Uh, instead of the 230 Or did the 230 exist? Because, don't forget, uh, June could have just said it was £230, hoping that she'd get it all back. But maybe it was only 120 Or maybe she just made a miscalculation with her diary on the amount she was giving in. We don't know. This is all between two people. Uh, um, uh, one thing that I put in there were Alice and June lovers don't forget this is the 1950s being gay is illegal it's, it, it, for me it just seems kind of weird that Alice who is a very standoffish person who's had a lot of bad relationships in her past especially with men not a lot of good male relationships maybe they were and don't forget this is an era where you couldn't be gay so maybe or maybe they were just really really close friends we don't know uh it seems odd that uh alice would have a room upstairs above the cafe that she never used it also seems odd that she has a flat in uh whitfield street that she's had for 14 years that she never uses as well and she's paying for that as well. So why? It, it doesn't make sense. There's these little pieces. I know that she can't sleep. She says she can't sleep in a bed. But why? What is going on? You can hear a noisy truck behind. This is what I have to deal with. Uh, um, uh, one thing that I was thinking. This is just an outside idea. But everyone calls her madam. And the other phrasing for a madam is someone who runs a brothel. Now, this could just be an, a weird outside thing, but think about it. She's become friends with a sex worker. She, uh, she's looking after a sex worker's money. She's looking after a sex worker's clothes. She lets this sex worker dress and put on her makeup inside the cafe. Um, and uh, as mentioned, she's got a, a flat, a flat upstairs and a flat that she rents over in uh, Fitzrovia that she doesn't use and no one sees her enter. So maybe she is a uh, maybe she's running a brothel. This is just a weird outside thought of just uh, my brain was just trying to think of all the th that is so effing noisy. I'm glad that I finished recording now. Um, uh, oh, I can't concentrate with that going on. Um, so yeah, maybe it's just an outside idea, but maybe maybe they uh, maybe she, she is a matter, or maybe she isn't. Maybe she's just a very friendly person. Um, why did, was she upset about the loss of Max? Her and Max have been together for about 10 years, they reckon. They had, it, they hadn't, it, it wasn't said that they were boyfriend and girlfriend, but they'd been cohabiting. So whatever that means. But as we know, we know very little about June's life. June's life, sorry, uh, uh, Alice's life. Alice kept very quiet. Uh, she didn't talk to people about her love life, things like that. So we don't know. We don't know. I'm going to fill you in on some extra details because obviously the the purpose with this episode was to focus on the kind of the why. So we focused a lot on the early life and then the attack itself. But the the post attack uh, has some more details in there that I can I can show you here. So 11:30. We know that this is 11:30. The girls left the cafe. The waitresses left at 11:20. Obviously they turned around. They went to the corner. They saw the waiter, whose name I won't mention 
uh, trying to pick up a prostitute he was drunk so they were on the corner of chapel street and edgware road which is about 50 yards left of where the cafe is it's it's within within sight you could walk in 10 seconds easily so they were pretty close but they they didn't hear anything because the kitchen was out back um uh june unbolts the door she runs out uh she goes uh immediately left and she sees them and obviously they say what's the matter and what's the matter what's going on she said madam did it i was bending over in the cupboard to get my money and she stabbed me uh haig who was there she left because she doesn't like the sight of blood but the other girl who was there emerson uh, i think it's betty emerson uh she shouted for a police there was a policeman uh pc george weissman who was on duty in parade street at that point um he ran over saw that it was a problem uh, and he saw that june was uh, bleeding profusely because don't forget she's got six stab wounds by that point and she's losing a lot of blood uh he knew uh june mckechnie uh she obviously as a sex worker she'd been uh uh she'd had a couple of convictions already so he already knew her uh an ambulance was called uh via the phone box uh and then she was taken to uh, st mary's it, it seems kind of odd to get in a, an ambulance um to st mary's because st mary's is li- it's literally like a, a one minute walk but i guess they have to ha- have to uh as pc weissman got her into the ambulance he said that june was very incoherent but said this happened in the cafe uh hang on, what did where is it what she said uh she said that a handbag was missing which it was it was still inside the cafe she'd left it there uh, i went into the victory cafe to get some money and and i which i had le- left with the manageress she asked me into her room where she stabbed me with a carving knife i think i must uh have had a go at her but i'm not really sure uh she also said to the ambulance driver i went to the video cafe to see the manageress who was keeping some money for me uh which i've been giving her each week to save she told me the money was upstairs and i would have to go up for it she took she took me uh, and pointed to her cupboard and said the money is in the box there you get it out uh, as i was getting it out i half turned uh, from the cupboard and saw the manageress approaching with a carving knife she struck me several times with a knife and put her hand over my mouth to stop me screaming i bit her hand during the struggle and managed to get hold of the knife i may have used it i don't know i don't know where the knife is it's funny because there she says that she was upstairs but she wasn't upstairs uh, we know that she was downstairs in the kitchen because that's where the, that's where it all happened but obviously people get confused um so the detectives turned up they were de- uh, sergeant burgoyne and detective constable ogden uh, they turned up at the cafe so june was taken to uh, st mary's hospital where she was examined by the casualty officer officer dr keith abel uh, she was suffering sh- from shock and had lost a lot of blood so as mentioned she had six wounds uh, a laceration one and a half inches long to her left left cheek it wasn't deep uh, but it was kind of a vertical wound coming away from the mouth. A second one, a laceration to the left of the middle of the crown of the head, which was three and a half inches long. Uh, a half inch wound to her left shoulder, about an inch deep. Uh, a An L-shaped wound on the upper left arm, each side an inch long. The wound was deep and moved. It looked like the blade had been stuck in and then it would mo- was moved back and forth and kind of sideways. Lovely um again uh, another 
wound to the left arm two and a half inches long and another one slightly smaller about an inch long so six wounds in total um luckily absolutely amazing missed all arteries and veins even though it was an incredibly sharp knife uh she had superficial wounds to her hands and palms and fingers as you'd expect as well um she had a transfusion of half a pint of blood she needed several stitches but she made a full uh recovery uh, so detective john ogden and uh sergeant burgoyne entered the kitchen uh, there was only li- one light on, which you'd expect, because uh, Alice always left one light on, which was in the kitchen. Um, in the cafe, the front bit, no signs of disturbance. Everything was kind of normal. They went into the back. Alice was lying on her back with her head towards the doorway, uh, more or less in the centre of the kitchen. Blood was splashed under her and all up the shelves and the table. Uh, it was obvious that the woman was dead. Uh, they called the doctor, obviously, to pronounce that life was extinct. Uh, let's see uh, yep so Dr Charles Holmes turned up and he was the one who uh, identified her her, um, Alice's brother ended up being the person who identified her it's kind of odd in a way because he saw her in um, the mortuary uh, I think it's Westminster no Marleybone mortuary Um, but he hadn't seen her in 24 years so it was kind of it was like that looks like my sister but I'm just not too sure really so uh uh, but the the other person who identified the body was uh sorry uh, dr kennedy was the police surgeon uh, uh charles holmes was the manager of john jacks limited so john jacks was the company who owned uh, uh victory cafe when they got in there the floor was heavily blood-stained um uh, as well as around the hot and cold water taps of the sink that's kind of where the fight happened um uh, there was a red lady's handbag, which was June's lying on top of a small cabinet. Uh, that was, she'd literally picked it up ready to go out. They knew it was June's because when they looked inside, uh, her national registration card was in there in her name, as well as her diary, which uh, contained the sums given to Alice. Uh, also, a pair of gloves, a large carving knife found blood stained on the floor beneath, beneath the left sink. Uh, it was bent. And the blade was about five and a half inches long. This was the one that uh, Alice had tried to stab June with, that June had bent. Uh, there was a small life, blood-stained, uh, found in a potato bin, which was half full of dirty water. Um, so after June had managed to stab uh, Alice, she'd thrown the knife. She, she said she couldn't remember what she'd done with it, but she'd thrown it and it had gone into the, a bin of uh, uh, half-cut potatoes. Uh, also a pair of spectacles lying on the floor these were Alice's as well Um, now some people could could say that this was potentially a robbery maybe June was robbing her but it it wasn't possible because the takings for the day were already there there was uh, a plate of coins on a small table with um, uh, how much was there one pound two shillings uh, yeah and uh, well one pound and twenty shillings three my brain is gone. Uh, basically, there was, a, <laughs> there was about two pounds there. Uh, about two pounds there. Uh, money in the drawer as well. Uh, there was 23 pounds in one pound notes, 19 shillings and 10 pence. Uh, there was money on the counter, which was five pounds, three shillings and three pence. So that totaled 32 pounds, nine shillings and four pence, which is roughly a day's takings. So if this was a robbery, the person who robbed the place didn't rob it because the money was the money was still sitting there so uh robbery could be ruled out um 
they obviously had mentioned they dug up all the, they ripped up all the floorboards upstairs found absolutely nothing but when they searched the kitchen in the back was a disused ice box which was full of scrap paper and they found in there uh 120 pounds uh so if it was alice's 110 was missing but alice said that she'd don't forget she hadn't rolled up the notes or put them flat in an envelope these were folded in half that was her way of doing it so she she said that's how she knew those notes were hers ah let's see what else we've got um let's do alice's statement so upon uh as mentioned she was detained in hospital she was there up until the 3rd of january 1951 so she's there for roughly a week uh and when she was released she was uh, arrested on suspicion of murder um and taken to paddington green police station which is just over the road um so her statement um uh, after being in London for a couple of months, I began to go to the Victory Cafe in Edgware Road, which is opposite Sam Isaacs and near Chapel Street. Uh, I became friendly with the manageress, and she used to talk to me when I had my meals there. All the customers know her as Madam, and she said she lived in a flat above the cafe. I don't know whether that is true, as I have never been there. I always think that's an interesting statement of why she would say that. Uh, about a year ago I started to buy clothes and things and as I couldn't be bothered to take them home I asked madam if she would keep them for me again that's just kind of a strange statement as Craven Hill Gardens where she lived is about four streets away but maybe she just didn't want to implicate the other lodgers as being thieves um she said she would uh, and I gave her the clothes to look after for me she used to keep them for me for two or three days and then she would give them back to me I always get money pinched from me and I asked madam to look after some for me. Sometimes uh, I used to give her £2 and sometimes £5, uh, which she did. Uh, when I first started, I didn't keep a note of the money I gave her, but a few months ago, madam told me to keep a note of what I was giving her. Uh, and I did so in my little silver diary, which I keep in my handbag. The police would find the handbag. Uh, whenever I wanted any money, madam always let me have it without any trouble. The biggest sum of money I gave her was a couple of day, days ago. I gave her £70 in a dark blue envelope. Uh, they were in £1 notes. I gave her another envelope with £30 in £5 notes and £34 in £1 notes in the same envelope. Before this, she already had £30 in £5 notes, uh, which she was holding for me. She said she would put the money... She would put the money I gave her two days ago with the others, which she said she kept under the floorboards, under the carpet upstairs where she lived, although she didn't live there. Uh, before I gave her the big sum, Madam was also holding another £50 for me. In total, she had £214. Madam also had a lot of clothes belonging to me. She gives a list of the clothes here. Uh, about two weeks ago, I asked Madam for £30 she was holding for me because I decided to put it at the post office. Uh, she then said I would have to go upstairs with her to get it and help her pull up the floorboards to get it. Uh, I was always late at the cafe and I didn't go upstairs when she offered and I couldn't and I could not be bothered. The reason I gave Madam... The reason I gave Madame the two envelopes with the money I have told you about was uh, because I had £10 pinched from me at the place I was staying. I told Madame when I gave her the money that I would probably want it back in about two or three days' time and put it in the post office, as I have, account, as I have an account at the Marble Arch post office. 
After coming out of the pictures last night at about half past ten, I went to the Victory Cafe. There were some people in there, but the doors are closed at quarter to eleven to stop more customers coming in. After the customers had left and the waitresses had started to tidy up, I went to the kitchen to Madam and to listen to the radio. I do this every night I go in there. At about 11.15pm, the two waitresses in the cafe left, left the cafe and I was left alone with Madam. I then picked up my handbag and I was ready to go when Madam said, you can come upstairs with me now and we can do that. I knew what she was talking about, uh, it was the money, and she said it was under the floorboards and I said, all right, I will come up with you. I was about to leave the kitchen when Madam said, go and get the cardboard box out of the cupboard. I knew the cupboard she meant uh, as I'd seen her go to it before. It's at the top end of the kitchen on the left. I had to turn sideways to get past the gas stove and as I turned round to ask her which box she meant, I saw she had a long carving knife in her hand. Without saying anything, Madam rushed at me and stabbed me on the shoulder, face and head. I was hurt when she struck me on the shoulder and I turned round and caught hold of her right hand, which was holding the knife. She tried to trip me up, uh, putting one leg out and throw me over. By this time there was a lot of blood on my cuts and Madame then pulled me down to the floor. She was kneeling and so was I. Um, she then put my hand. She then put her hand around me, which was the one still holding the knife, and with the other she was trying to pull my. And with the other she was trying to pull my jaw down. I then bit her fingers and caught hold of her hand and pressed the blade against the floor as I feared she would have stabbed me. I felt dizzy after the struggle and managed to get to my feet whilst Madam still held on to me. Whilst resting on the board I saw a knife lying near the sink. I picked it up and hit Madam on the shoulder and back two or three times with it. Notice she says hit, not stabbed. Uh, she then let go of me and managed to take the knife away from me and fling it between... Oh, sorry, and I managed to take the knife away from her and I flung it between the buckets under the floorboards, which is why well, they found it under the sick sink. The knife I had, I threw it into the bin which holds the potatoes and water. She kept hanging onto my coat and loosened my fingers and and ran out. Uh, when I last saw her, I was going out of the shop. I was going out of the shop and she was standing by the kitchen floor. Very weird noise outside. Sound like someone weeing in the water. Um, inquest was opened at St Pancras Coroner's Court on the 29th of December 1950. Uh, June was remanded at uh, the Marleybone Metropolitan Magistrates Court uh, and held in custody, custody at uh, Paddington Green Police Station. <coughs> um, police looked into... Uh, Oh, cup of tea. Lovely. Police looked uh, all over the flat for a any extra money, and that's all they could find. They took blood tracings uh, from under June's nails and um, obviously Alice's as well. Interestingly, uh, when it was announced that uh, um, uh, Alice had some money in her bank account, uh, Frederick Arthur Williams, who was a former partner, um, he made an application to try and get access to Alice's bank account, even though he hadn't seen her since the start of World War Two. Um, uh, he and he said he said that he had loaned her five hundred and twenty pounds in cash uh, before embarking uh, uh, out to World War Two. Uh, apparently, he lost contact with her. He hadn't seen her since he he left 
during World War Two, and he, he said he spent the next decade trying to find her ever so often, but he couldn't keep tabs on her. He did know about the, he knew about the flat in Fitzrovia, but she was never there. So, uh, and he didn't know what cafe she worked at. So, uh, I don't really know. Whether, uh, th- there was also someone else who did that as well. Someone else tried to get access to her money, and when I went into the archive files, someone has gone in and had it redacted. Now, it's weird that they would go in and redact that specific detail, but someone has. Someone has gone in and to remove the fact that uh, someone tried to get the, the, the money that was left in her account, the £11. Um, so the autopsy of Alice was held at St Mary's Church by Dr Francis Cramps, Camps. Uh, death was caused by shock and hemorrhage, caused by a stab wound to the back of the chest, which penetrated the left lung. Uh, the, he saw that she had bra- abrasions to the knees uh, with tearings to the stockings in keeping with the rough surface or kneeling which makes sense that shows that the two of them were kind of fighting on the floor uh, abrasions to the fingers of the left hand in contact with a rough surface again that's the same uh, a linear scratch on the right brow and small bruises um, and an impact with a blunt object or surface that's when she kind of hit the floor a defensive wound so a stab wound outside her right arm with the flapping of skin and incised wound to the left middle finger so she again had defensive wounds to her left hand when she's been stabbed uh, alice had uh, four stab wounds three on the left shoulder uh, in a downwards angle into the soft tissue and one stab wound uh, to the left breast directed upwards there was a superficial wound uh, on top of the left shoulder blade, but the death wound itself was a single stab two inches deep from the midline of the right of the back, passing through the eighth rib, cutting uh, the upper lobes of the right lung. Death was not imminent, uh, instant, and they, he said that she would have been capable of effort afterwards. So when Alice was standing in the doorway, staring uh, at June as she was walking away... Um, that were the, that were, those were the final moments of Alice. Uh, her, when they went back, they looked at her blood. Her clothes were absolutely soaked in blood, so she totally bled through. Uh, Alice was buried in uh, the Marleybone. Uh, she was buried by St Marleybone Borough Council, and her bank account was used to pay the expenses. Uh, so all the people who tried to get access to her account, saying, "Oh, this was my money," they didn't get a penny because the council took it, as the council do. Um, as mentioned, the trial was held on the 25th of January 1951 at Marleybone Magistrates Court. It was a quick case. This was this was the case that should have said, is this a criminal trial? Does it go to the Old Bailey? Uh, and basically the magistrate, Gigi Raphael, was there. Uh, and he, he turned, there was Morris Crump for the prosecution and S. Coleman solicitors for the defence. Um, uh, Gigi Raphael, as mentioned in the episode, turned to Mr. Crump and said... We've got all this evidence here that basically says this is justifiable homicide in self-defence. Do you have any evidence which contradicts this? Uh, Mr Crump said, no. Therefore, under Section 25 of the Indictable Offences Act of 1848, uh, uh, June was released. Uh, She didn't have to serve any more time in prison. Basically, she'd already served served some time in there and she was released. Um... And that's it. That's that's all we know. So we do, so why did she do it? We don't know. We don't know. She obviously she didn't leave a note. She didn't say, "Oh, I'm planning to go and kill June, and this is why." 
dear Michael, for your podcast in 70 years time, this is this is why I plan to kill June. We don't know. We don't know what, what snapped. We don't know what maybe June is not telling us everything. Maybe maybe there's something to do. This is why I've put in the thing in there to do with the blood poisoning. The blood poisoning is in there. The fact that she has insomnia that she's tired the fact that she's on the, this medication uh, which makes it hard for her to kind of sleep so she's not sleeping and she's not she hasn't slept in a bed in ages maybe there's something going on or maybe it maybe there is a just kind of the loneliness of feeling oh my god here's another person who's going to leave me we don't know so there's that we don't know we don't know i wish we did but we don't so let's do answers to the questions Question number one. Where was Alice born? She was born in Church Stretton in, in neighbouring Shropshire. Yes. Question two. What was Alice's first job? She worked in her parents' bakery. Question number three. What was Alice's surname before she got married? It was Davies. Question four. Where was Alice working when she injured her finger? At a German pork butcher's. Question five. Before managing the Victory Cafe, where did Alice spend her summers? She spent it as the manageress of the Cabin Cafe in Douglas on the Isle of Man. Question six. What was June's middle name? It was Georgina. Question seven. What was the special meal they were serving in the cafe that day? It was, of course, Christmas dinner. What was eight? What was the name of the cafe's waiter who was drunkenly picking up a prostitute? His name was Len. Dirty, dirty Len. Question nine. What was the name of the cinema slash theatre next to the cafe? It was the Gaumont. One of many, many cinemas that were destroyed, unfortunately. And uh, just over the road, uh, up from the A40, uh, there was a really, really posh theatre as well. A really magnificent venue. Totally demolished to make way for the... Um, to make way for the A40. Uh, and question 10, uh, what was the name of the pub which Alice occasionally went into for a little light sherry? It was the Pontefract, which is still there today, but a different name. Right, that's it. Hope you all enjoyed that. We will be back next week with another one I'm tired. We'll be back next week with another one-parter, and this will be a sad one, a very sad one, so get ready. Have yourself a good week. Stay safe and be good. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.